Hi, I'm Dr. Harpreet Nagra, VP of Behavioral Science at OneDrop. Femtech to me is an opportunity to correct inherent biases present in our digital industry by prioritizing equity and cultural humility. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus Podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto. Before I intro our guest, I want to tell you about some really exciting updates at Femtech Focus. First, we have migrated our virtual community to a new, more interactive platform. We moved our previously publicly available databases of Femtech startups and exits from our website to this new community. You can find the Femtech Institute, which is a self-guided women's health accelerator, to learn how to fundraise, build, and scale your company. I host weekly office hours where I would love to meet with all of you one-on-one. We have an events calendar of all the upcoming women's health events around the world, and you have the ability to add yours, too. Sounds awesome, right? Well, it's free to join and only $14.99 a month if you want to unlock the FemPro perks. Join the community by going to femtechfocus.org. The second big announcement is our upcoming virtual jobs fair with our partner at the Bowdoin Group on March 23rd from 12 to 3 p.m. Eastern. Whether you're a student looking for an internship or post-graduation work, or if you're a professional switching industries, this is a great opportunity for you. We'll have an incredible keynote interview with the Bowdoin Group about the current state of the jobs market and what skills people need to work and be successful in femtech. Then you'll have the opportunity to meet virtually in different rooms with different companies and learn about their mission and open positions. If you are a women's health company hiring, this event is for you too. Whether you are looking for interns, a co-founder, making your first official hire, scaling your team, or filling out a whole department, companies from big to small can register to have a virtual booth and meet with hundreds of the top femtech candidates around the world. Register at femtechfocus.org. Alrighty, Fem fans, in today's episode, I interviewed Dr. Hapreet Nagra, a behavioral scientist, clinical researcher, licensed psychologist, and equity expert. She serves as the B- VP of Behavioral Science and Advanced Technologies at OneDrop. OneDrop is a digital health company harnessing the power of behavioral science, mobile computing, and data science to transform the lives of people with diabetes and other chronic conditions worldwide. In this interview, we speak about techquity. Techquity refers to digital health solutions being more equitable, accessible, and inclusive. I know many of you listeners know about these systemic biases in AI, artificial intelligence, or ML, machine learning algorithms, used in healthcare that aren't being addressed. In just one example, most of the data used to power AI are from studies done predominantly with male subjects. In another example, a 2019 study found that an algorithm assigned the same health score to black patients who are considerably sicker than white patients. As we continue to see digital health exploding, these companies are basing their solutions on biased algorithms. Dr. Harpri and I discussed how we must prioritize the creation and refinement of digital health tools to advance equity and cultural humility. Enjoy the episode.
Hey, Hapreet, welcome to the show. Hi, Brittany. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Where are you calling in from today? So I am in uh, cloudy Portland, Oregon today. So uh, it's a slightly dreary, uh, but beautiful as always. <laughs> isn't, isn't that typical? Yeah, yeah. pretty much. <laughs> it's not raining today, so that's nice. <laughs> Usually it's a rainy uh, weekday, typically. Well, I am so excited to have you on the show. We're going to talk about some really, really important stuff today. And, um, you know, when I heard about you and your expertise, I was like, yep, there it is. I need to have that story on the show. So I'm so glad to have you here. Um, let's kick off the show, though, with your background. We want to learn about you. You know, I always like to say that we didn't usually wake up and say, I'm going to like fight for women's health equality, right? Like we usually somehow ended up here through a, a various ways. So give us a little bit of background where you're from. You know, what did you study? Where did your career really start? And how did you end up here? Yeah, definitely. So I was raised in Arizona and ended up in Oregon for graduate school. Um, and during that time, I was really kind of developing my sense of social justice identity, uh, what that's going to mean, what uh, it would look like in my career. Um, I ended up working a lot with initially kids and families who were managing some sort of a chronic illness. Um, and I was uh, working as a therapist at that time. And as I was going through my graduate program, I learned that there's a lot of um, challenges, not just, you know, accessing the healthcare system, but just challenges in terms of how to access appropriate treatment, appropriate resources that you need um, just to get through the day uh, for a family that's managing a chronic illness. So um, in addition to mental health challenges and um, uh, community-based barriers, uh, there's a number of different things. And so I ended up, you know, going through my PhD program in psychology. I became a licensed psychologist. I specialized in health psychology. Um, and I would see folks on a day-to-day -day basis at, uh, within a hospital setting where they were sharing a lot of the same stories uh, with me uh, of not feeling heard by the healthcare system or feeling alone in their health journey. And I really wanted to reach out to um, to all the folks, you know, figure out a way to kind of bring everybody together and um, digital health solutions was the way to do it. So I um, signed up for a job with OneDrop as their VP of behavioral science. Um, and through this particular position, I'm supporting uh, the development of new clinically based programs that are um, uh, helpful to people living with chronic conditions. So um, the idea is to support adults and of course, um, caregivers who are supporting uh, adults uh, with chronic conditions. Um, and our job is to create lifestyle interventions. Um, my job is to create lifestyle interventions that are going to show up at a digital space and um, be accessible to people. So that's what I do for work. Outside of work, I'm a wife to a wonderful partner and a mom of three, um, all under the age of four. So that's always uh, an adventure. <laughs> uh, yeah, listeners, we were uh, talking about poop before our interview started. <laughs> we were <laughs> potty training and all that stuff. Uh, yeah, it's real. Um, if you want to learn more about poop, check, check out our um, 
uh, women's health, gut health. We had a great period poop episode. So um, we, we're not afraid to talk about stool on the show. Not but, at all. <laughs> women poop, y'all, women poop. We got to like break that stigma. Um, <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, you know, we do have a YouTube channel so people can see this video recording. But for the people who are listening, can you tell us a little bit about your heritage? Yeah. So I am um, uh, South Asian. So I was born in India. I uh, came to the United States when I was about nine years old and have really just been on the West Coast majority of my life. So we live in California, Arizona, and then I moved to Oregon, met my husband here and have settled down here. So um, South Asian by background. And then um, because I grew up on the West Coast, I always have considered myself a bit of a valley girl. Yeah. <laughs> but, and because the, you, I don't have an accent. And so I don't really like fit into the South Asian community, you know, the, you know, recent immigrant community. Um, so I call myself the 1.5 generation. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, do you think that, uh, and the reason I bring this up is because we're going to get into, you know, as a woman of color, as you re- found all of these biases in AI and healthcare, digital health, we're going to get into that. But I think that your opinion is it's really firsthand, right? Like you were like, wow, this affects me, right? Do you think that when you were working in that hospital setting and patients were admitting to you, like the things that are getting suggested to me are not really, I don't feel like they're actually for me. Do you think that, that, uh, the patient saw you as a woman of color and thought you might be, have some more compassion for their experience? Yeah. You know, it went in both directions. So there were, um, because the population that I was working with, it was a little bit older, um, but they were all folks living with diabetes. So I would have experiences with um, members from communities of color where they felt heard and seen and and um, validated for the first time because they had a provider of color sitting across from them, right? So they had a doctor who was talking to them about their emotions and experiences um, related to their medical condition and actually spending the time to... Um, work through and problem solve whatever the challenges were, which is different from, you know, the 15 minute medical appointment that most folks have. A psychologist appointment is typically 45 to 50 minutes. So in that way, there was already a a change. Um, But then I would also have experiences, and and this might be a a different conversation for a different day, but um, where I was perceived as somehow promoting um, certain therapies because I was a woman of color, Um, and this is a little bit more of like the racism that exists in, in those types of settings. So, um, like I would potentially suggest meditation or yoga because these are tried and true impactful things for reducing stress for folks. Um, and because I'm of a South Asian background, there would be questioning of why is she asking you to do this? Why is she pushing Buddhism on us? And yeah, yeah, exactly. Buddhism, Hinduism. (laughs) And it was not a religious conversation in any way, but uh, you know, those types of ideas and challenges would come up in, in, in therapy sessions. So it went a little bit in both directions, unfortunately. Totally. That's so interesting. Well, you know, um, you are helping pioneer this movement, uh, entitled Techwity. What Mm -hmm. is Techwity? Yeah, so it's not officially my term. There was a a group of researchers, uh, Rhi and her colleagues, who came up with the idea of Techwity. And um, in a nutshell, it's the strategic design, development, and implementation of design tools that are going to advance health equity. So we want to figure out a way to support 
traditionally marginalized communities who have experienced inequity in the healthcare system, um, we want to avoid replicating some of the challenges they've experienced there in the digital health space. So um, this means, you know, providing more individualized care in our in our design uh, of clinical design within digital tools and making sure that we're addressing some of the disparities that have um, impacted communities of color over the years. Do you think that we have an opportunity to circumvent, you know, inequalities in digital health because it's arising now versus our healthcare system, which is like a beast of a thing, which is going to be so hard and long. It's going to be a long, 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 you know, um, fight, or I don't like the word fight. It's so violent, right? But like a movement to create quality in our healthcare system. But do you think there's an opportunity for us in digital health to get it right from the get-go? Yeah, I think, you know, when the idea of transferring your care to a digital solution was first presented, it was kind of seen as the gold standard, you know, that you wouldn't have to deal with, um, uh, you know, the inconvenience of having to go to a doctor's office or the, um, you you could access, you know, very easily the resources right on your phone in your living room. Uh, And of course, the pandemic pushed everything forward uh, at a rapid pace. Um, I do think it's it was originally thought of as the our golden ticket out of health inequities. But I think what's happening is that a lot because it's still humans who are designing these digital platforms, um, a lot of our biases that are present in the healthcare system are now transferring over into our digital space. And I know we're going to get into that, but um, that I think is the challenge we want to bring awareness to and make sure that as we're designing new tools and and resources, we're at the very least being mindful of of how um, we might be furthering cultural insensitivity or cultural um, uh, uh, inhumility. You know, uh, we want to make sure that we're not replicating the same exact weaknesses that our healthcare system has again in a digital uh, world. Yeah. Well, you know, it's uh, interesting. I was talking to my friend Teresa this afternoon. I said, Oh, I got this awesome interview coming up. We're going to talk about bias and AI. And she was like, but doesn't like AI have the internet to like tap into. And I was like, listen to what you just said, the internet, like the internet is crude, right? Like, right. So how are, how are algorithms racist? Like, are they sexist? Uh, Like what, and and when I mean algorithm, like we have listeners that may or may not know what I'm even referring to. So can you break that down? Like, sometimes I feel like we're like, oh, if we take humans out of it, racism, racism will leave too. But who made those search engines, right? It's us. The data we produce. So kind of walk us through this mindset of like, if someone's never heard about a racist robot before, like how and why does that even happen? Yeah. So I'll give you one of like the most popular examples that exist uh, out in the world. We all use Google, right? Um, uh, Google.com is our first go-to whenever we have a question in a conversation or, um, you know, we're sitting in our living room and we want to so much uh, so that I don't even put in Google.com. I just, yeah, exactly. I'm like, I'm like, no, <laughs> yeah. no, you just go to the yeah. webpage and you start putting information. It and uh, it shows up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, this was actually, um, brought up in a, in a study a while back where if you were to Google images, um, search in Google images for, let's say white teens, you'll see then on the results page, you'll see very sort of happy-go-lucky kids being kids, you know, enjoying their day at the park or enjoying their company uh, with each other. However, if you were to put in um, a search for Im- Google images of, of black teens, 
what would pop up is a series of mugshots. So right then and there, you would there would be a shaping in your mind of what is a black teen do or what are they likely to do? So let's carry that over to the digital health world. Um, in the diabetes health space, um, you have to know what an endocrinologist is. That is the specialist who supports your uh, diabetes care, right? So let's say you are newly diagnosed and you need to look up um, endocrinologists in your area. You go to Google, right? And what you'll see typically is um, white male doctors. Images of white male doctors show up. If you belong to, uh, you know, a community of color, uh, marginalized communities, and potentially have experienced um, distrust of the healthcare system or have experienced, you know, uh, historical trauma from the healthcare system, seeing more white male doctors show up on your Google image page may kind of send you running. So like, I don't want to deal with this. I'm not going to deal with whatever diabetes is going to bring my way. There are limited, so there are limited images of um, white female physicians, uh, but also uh, doctors of color present on the Google algorithm. So Google has been, you know, kind of tapped as the uh, first place where we experience an algorithm. Um, and it's the one algorithm that majority of us are familiar with. Um, but it, they've been working to correct some of these biases. Uh, however, um, we want us to continue to advance the idea that misrepresentation or lack of representation on something as simple as an Google images results page is creating deeper problems for us. And I can say as a psychologist, as a behavioral scientist, what we say, our thoughts, our feelings, our behavior are, are constantly being shaped by what we observe as normal in our environment, right? So if you're only seeing black teens um, uh, mugshots, or if you're only seeing white male doctors, you're not going to be, um, your reality is going to be different from what reality could be, right? So it's just, it's something for us to be mindful of. And I think as, as a woman of color with young kids of color coming up in this digital space, it's got me concerned about, you know, what is this altered vision of normal that we're creating for kids who are um, living in the digital world more so than any of us have in the past, right? So I, they need to be represented and to be okay with seeing themselves and the, some of these solutions. Well, I thought, I, I bet you saw that thing that went viral it was a, a medical illustrator that created an illustration of a black woman pregnant with a black baby and it went viral. And, yeah. you know, I know that was really impactful for black women. Whoa, I've never seen myself in a diagram. My OBGYN all has white, white vaginas, white uteri, white yeah. diagrams. But, you know, I also think about how does that affect the physician if the only images they ever research, study, learn about, see every single day in their own workplaces, all of white women. And when a yeah. black woman comes in, like, what, how might that change how they treat her, right? Do you have any other examples of, um, you know, so we've been talking about like racism essentially, right? Yeah. How about like sexism, any differences in healthcare and algorithms and, and bias between men and women's healthcare? Yeah, so I would say this one, this particular example goes back to the slave era um, where uh, folks with black skin were perceived to have different um uh, nerves, you know, they were perceived to have uh, experienced less pain than uh, their white counterparts. And so that idea has kind of um, been transferred in uh, medical training settings over the years. To this day, we know of um, medical trainees not treating 
pain at the same level for a black woman as they would for a, a white woman. Um, the idea here is that again, uh, these the, some of these ideas go back so far that um, the black skin is thicker, that it doesn't experience as much pain, that you don't need to provide as much treatment. Um, so the 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 rates at which women, black women, experience inappropriate. Uh, interventions or lack thereof of interventions, such as in pain treatment, is appalling. Um, you can Google this very easily, going back to Google. Um, some of these uh, prevalence rates tend to be so challenging for people of color to kind of sit with and to recognize that it's 2022 and we're still dealing with issues that were present to us, um, presented to us back in you know the slave era. It's quite challenging to kind of sit with and digest um, often. So how did you as a woman of color, when you first started to like reveal these biases, how did that, you know, change your yeah. perspective? You know, there was a, a class that um, we took where um, so I told you earlier that I had worked with child and family. Um, uh, I re had received training in child and family therapy. And at one point they were talking about health and equity issues amongst black females. And I was, I sat there thinking as a potential, you know, provider in the future, do I really want to have kids? You know, like if, if black women are experiencing these atrocities, they're dying during childbirth because they're being mistreated or uh, not appropriately treated. What is, how is that going to impact other communities of color? And um, it really had me questioning, you know, do I want to bring forth children in this world? And I don't even know what's going to happen personally for me in, um, in the, in the delivery room. Um, so I think it, it, it challenged, um, some of the sort of basic milestones that you want to hit in life. Uh, it had me questioning how are, you know, my friends who, who identified as black, how are they experiencing some of these challenges? How are they thinking through these ideas? Um, it, it really kind of shakes up your world to have your future be questioned based off of how things are going on, going today. What is cultural sensitivity in terms of healthcare? Yeah, so it's a, a, a number of things. Um, so I would say in the digital health space, what we're looking at is how are we um, addressing some of the, the health inequities that have been present for communities of color throughout the history of time. So uh, cultural insensitivity can show up in the types of digital interventions that are created. It can show up in the specific product design features. So things like fonts and colors and other icon level development. I'm, I'm oversimplifying it a little bit, but at that level, um, are we paying attention to the diverse audience that's going to be utilizing this particular product for us. So for example, in um, when you're designing a digital clinical intervention, you want to avoid, uh, again, uh, replicating the health inequities that exist. So we know that Black Americans are more than twice as likely to die from cardiovascular disease compared to white Americans. The majority of the research that's done in developing a digital clinical program is done with white Americans. So there, there's a misrepresentation of that data in terms of how it's applied to folks who are most at risk for using it right or need to use it similarly um we have there's a lot of like lifestyle um uh interventions that are out there so you know we all know about peloton and uh, exercise uh interventions and um, tools to help you log your food um, to improve your diet or to uh apps that help you quit smoking all of these tools are, are great again um there really should be uh designed for audiences that are um 
that they should be targeted towards audiences that are most at risk for it. So again, Black Americans are higher uh, at are at higher risk for poor diet, smoking, physical activity. But again, the tools themselves are um, not always appropriately designed for um, the population that would be most at risk for. Yeah, you got me thinking now because people who are yeah. getting Peloton, they can afford a gym membership, yeah. right? <laughs> and they have a car and they have a job that they can, you know, take their hour break and go work out or whatever. Yeah. Right? Like the people I, I get upset with Peloton because everyone's so fit already. I'm like, well, I guess I don't <laughs> for super fit people. So I want to see more like real life humans, but whatever, we'll put a pin in that for another <laughs> conversation. Yeah. But, yeah. you got me thinking like who needs at, be to be able to work out at home because their life is so full. It's not that those people that are in their huge apartments and huge homes and they have a whole spare bedroom just for their exercise equipment, right? Yeah. Um, they probably have the bandwidth to go out and exercise other places or even in their neighborhood, take a run around because it's a right. friendly neighborhood with sidewalks, right? Yep. Um, so you really got me thinking there. And then I'm thinking about the the smoking thing. So I am about, let me think, about 14 months uh, nicotine free. I'm very proud oh, of it. Congratulations. I uh, got hooked on the vape and it had me by my jugular, man, that I was addicted, yeah. especially with working from home. I could vape all day. It was, it was so bad. And, and I work in women's health and wellness. And I was like, yeah. this is the juxtaposition. But I, I did actually download a bu- several apps that like texted me encouraging things. Mm-hmm. Um, are those apps really targeted towards potentially, not that I'm affluent at all, but <laughs> a podcaster for God's sake, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. like, is it targeting people who probably could also like get in a, get an appointment or get um, patches or whatever versus public populations of color. Tell me a little bit more about the nicotine one. That's so interesting to me. Yeah. I would say any, anybody who can kind of, uh, afford a phone, uh, you know, have the internet to utilize the app. That's one category of people. Right. And then we have to think about, um, who is going to be most likely to stick to, um, some of the behavior change models that exist within those, um, apps, you know, so those encouraging, um, uh, push notifications that you get or the messages that pop up on your, on your phone, like who is actually going to read them and then follow through with them. When, when we're designing interventions, um, like at least from, you know, the design perspective, we have to be mindful of who is going to be most responsive. Um, and I would say majority of the time, at least, you know, what's existing in the literature right now is that a lot of times people kind of go for the easy route, which is let's go with folks who are going to be easy to, um, uh, who are going to easily follow our plan, who are going to show that our, that our app works, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And a lot of times those are people who are kind of already on the road to change. Um, you know, they're already four other resources outside of your app. Exactly. Exactly. So it's again, not intentionally designed for the highest risk folks, but um, maybe more for folks who are going to show, oh, this is another program that you could try. And, you know, let's, let's amp up our percentage of completers and 
This is now another talking point I'm going to go around the world with because I've often talked about um, that most femtech products have been made for the affluent white woman because we lack billing codes in our healthcare system for women's health. And so what happens is that investors are pressuring their investee startups to get revenue, get traction. The, The company says, oh my God, Congress takes two years to make a new billing code. Oh shit. Let's just go direct to consumer. Who's the consumer buying a $5,000 maternal belt to watch your fetal heart rate? It's affluent white woman, right? Like, um, and so then all of a sudden their branding is them. And then, you know, and then all of a sudden when they get the billing code, they're just going to specialists, right? Um, uh, And then they totally skip the Medicaid uh, plan, which half of the babies in the United States are are paid based on Medicaid. So do you think that like startups without a Medicaid strategy are inherently kind of discriminating? I would say it depends on what is the, if, if the, if the app started off in the beginning and, and they said, this is what, who we are designing for, then we're not, and that's who they're marketing for. And that's what their plan is. And they're consistent with that plan. Then it's not, we can't say that they're discriminating. Right. But if, if the app claims to support all people at all levels, uh, we know that majority of those um, situations are one, not possible. Uh, you know, we're, I don't think the research in terms of the intervention design in and of itself is, is far and long enough to say we can target every single person in this population. But what we can say is we can target this unique uh, group of people and make sure that they're receiving the resources that are available through our particular uh, app or our intervention, right? So I think as long as your your business plan is consistent with what you actually are are putting out into the world, then we're kind of limiting our, um, uh, we're creating a program that's equitable because you're saying from the the get-go that this is is the right audience and this is not the right audience. However, I think though, the larger point that I want to make here is that majority of the digital solutions that are out there are not even making that very clear. They're claiming that their products are uh, available to all people when um, they're really targeting um, the affluent and a particular racial group or ethnic group and so on. And I'm sure that when people are not successful, the company is essentially making the person feel like it's their fault. They didn't follow through, they didn't try hard enough, but actually it was like, that wasn't made for them in the first place. And so, interesting. So I think like, I mean, the way that companies could go around this is the idea of when you're building for all people, consider the various sort of social, cultural, and linguistic differences that might be present. So if you can provide ongoing training for your designers, ongoing training in the app for whatever machine learning algorithms, models that you have within the app to increase the cultural awareness or knowledge and skill sets that are present within the app, that goes a lot further than, uh, you know, claiming to be available to all people, but then not designing for all people. Yep. Yep. This is it's bringing me back to a very, very funny moment I haven't thought about in a long time. I used to be the founder of a dating app. It was a DNA-based dating app. And uh, my best friend, co-founder, his name is Dr. Bin Huang. He's a Chinese immigrant, data analyst, like total genius, geeky guy. He's creating our algorithm for matching based on the DNA stuff. And so I was giving him like the biological rules. He's coding it out. And I said, okay, so this is great. We got our algorithm for the heterosexual couples. Um, We need to also make something for the bisexual ones. And he was like, Mm -hmm. bisexual? And I was like, yeah, like 
that like the user can select both genders to want to be matched with. And there was this moment where he paused and he thought, and then he was like, oh, bisexual. Okay. Yeah, we can do that. But like, there was like this cultural moment where he was like, I've never really encountered this. I've never right. talked about it. I didn't even like his brain yeah. kind of opened up a little bit. And he was like, yeah, we can make that happen. But it was like this really actual beautiful moment for me too, to like open up his eyes to different sexualities and yeah. for him to be so receptive. Cause he's an awesome human. Like, but for him to be like, he really like never processed that before was presented with this new idea and was like, huh, wow, that's interesting. Yep. And it's yeah. like, when you're saying, how do you continue to train your UI UX designers? That's part of it, right? They don't know what they don't know. Ben, right. it's not like Ben is anti, you know, LGBT. He just right. has never really been proposed with that before, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. I think, again, the cultural insensitive, some insensitivity sometimes come from, comes from not knowing, not yeah. being exposed to these ideas. And it's not a bad thing to not be exposed. It's a, it's, it's a, a bad thing when you act or sort of create actions that kind of marginalize people as a result of not knowing so or not seeking that information out so I do think it's our responsibility to um, both seek it out and for organizations to provide that training on a regular basis that's actually going to lead me to my next question which is like so Ben you know great guy sorry Benny if you're listening to this you're you know (laughs) love love to you dude and using you as a case study here he didn't know what he didn't know right and so how do we know these amazing founders are out there? They're losing sleep, money, like they're yeah. their social life. They're dedicated to this app. They mean so good. They mean yeah. good. How do they know if they're actually being equitable and being culturally sensitive? How do we, how do we know what, if the end result is going the right direction? Yeah, I think. Uh, ongoing research. That is sort of the key to it all. We have to include diverse communities in the initial design of whatever it is that you're creating, but also in it, as you're doing making ongoing improvements to your UI your user experience, um, you have to constantly check in with the communities that you're trying to create for. Right. So again, if you're making the claim that this product is available to all communities, really check in. Like, are they, if we were to throw in a few racial, ethnic, and cultural diversity uh, pieces in there, whatever that might be, how does that impact your um, product feature development? How does it, um, how, what do those rates look like of completion from um, the users that are using your product um, of change that, you know, whatever change you're trying to create with, with the use of that product, you have to engage in ongoing research and research in itself is not, I won't say that it's unbiased, but it's, it's our, our best tool and making sure that we're not um, it's our best tool for holding ourselves accountable for um, the changes that we are trying to bring about. I know a lot of apps are using data sets that have been published or are publicly available within different databases. I'm a geneticist by training. I know we have an issue in our genetic databases where it's mostly men that's been sequenced, mostly white people that have been sequenced. There's actually now whole companies that are like essentially the black version of 23andMe because they're like, we literally just don't have enough black people data and you're literally making drugs for based on white 
individuals and then giving it to black people drugs are not working and we're like oops got to go all the way back two billion dollars in 10 years and try again yeah because our original data set wasn't diverse how are you know I mean, I feel for the founders, they don't have the bandwidth, the time, the money. They're not researchers, they're builders, they're tech yeah. people, right? How yeah. do we fix this issue where the baseline databases that we're using to even come up with discoveries is inherently racist and sexist? Like, wh- how are we going to change these databases? Yeah, I think there's a few different sort of strategies that we can utilize. I think first you have to start by um, laying the proper foundation. You have to allow your organization to have these types of conversations, you know, so you have to say, okay, what are the racial, ethnic, cultural diversity pieces that we need to consider both from a, like a leadership standpoint. So, you know, the folks driving the strategy for whatever the product is going to be, but also in terms of the folks who are actually implementing and, and doing the day-to-day design that goes into uh, the solution that you're creating. So lay the proper foundation. You could also have um, subject matter experts who people who are researchers um, join your teams. You know, if you have those resources available to you, um, those uh, folks can be really significant in shaping what uh, uh, ideas are are proposed and um, in correcting any sort of um, errors that might be um, coming up before they're built into the product. I think also uh, thinking about um, how do we uh, commit to um, being culturally sensitive or culturally humble is is probably the best term to uh, think about here. Because like we were saying earlier, sometimes you don't know what you don't know. So if you are practicing cultural humility, then you're okay uh, with making those mistakes, right? You're okay saying, okay, we screwed up here uh, as a company, but let's, let's, we're committed to fixing that. And we're going to do this by, um, you know, improving research efforts or improving our leadership positions and including diverse leadership folks or including um, diverse designers along the way. There's actually, this is an interesting side note, there's a 2021 survey that came out that there's a lot of young um, sort of technologists who have felt uncomfortable in their workplace due to like their gender or their ethnicity or their socioeconomic background or some sort of like hidden condition that they might have. And they're changing jobs to see career growth growth um, because they cannot have these conversations at their uh, digital organization. Yeah. So the survey, I think, said it was like 68% of um, young technologists who are feeling uncomfortable. Um, so, I mean, that's a, it's a pretty high number. So we have to think about how do we normalize these discussions so that we're not losing talent that's going to further our product that we're not you know um we're supporting people in a way that's going to not only give us the the equitable solutions that we're wanting but also um uh supporting the diverse communities that we want to build for and build with yeah that has been my um experience is that as long as i'm presenting myself as someone learning and on the journey that people have been really kind to correct me gently. Right. I've, I've had black women on the show and I've said something and they're like, well, that's actually not the right term or that's, and I'm like, okay, yep. I'll (laughs) never say that again. I'll go it. You know, or, um, you know, I have a a transgendered friend who I, it was the most interesting conversation because I was actually reflecting on a memory we had pre their transition when they had different pronouns. And in my memory, I was recalling it using those pronouns, even though they have different pronouns now. 
but I, and I realized I had never actually spoken to a trans person with their pre pronouns for, and it was like, uh, how do I, and they, and they were like, yeah, just that, please use my current pronouns. Even if at that time I was some, you know, I was like, okay, okay, okay. But like, yeah. I could tell like when I was saying the story that their face looked uncomfortable. And so I just stopped and I said, am I saying this wrong? You know? And they said, yes, yeah. these have actually always been my pronouns. Yeah. I was presenting as that then, you know, and okay, okay, okay. You know, and then I retold the story and we were all good. But like yeah. in that moment I learned, I was like, okay, got it. Yeah. They, we need to always, even if the story was about them, then this, this is the pronouns we're going to use. Um, so just being humil- humble. I love that culturally humble. I love that. Yeah. Um, this has literally been such a fascinating conversation. Um, I'm having so much fun. We have two last questions though, that our listeners really love. So we have a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs that want to work in women's health. So what is something in, uh, women's health and wellness that you think still needs innovating? Yeah, there's so many things though. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like, so I come from the background of, uh, health psychology. And then specifically I trained in endocrinology. So endocrinology is all about the sort of hormonal changes that we all experience. Um, and I think we all know women experience a lot of hormonal changes over the course of their life. Right. So I do think that, um, tools where we are doing a better job of introducing, um, both teenagers and young adults, um, to what their reproductive options are. There's, there's been some evolution in that, but I still feel like we have a long way to go. Um, and, and, presenting those options and educating, um, uh, young adopters of, of whatever those options are going to be. Um, also any type of like women's prenatal and postnatal mental health and physical health, uh, tools, I think are still very much needed. Um, when you're going through the experience of, um, you know, trying to have a baby, having the baby postpartum, you know, like all of those pieces are, um, such unique and very, uh, um, layered stages of your life that I do think we need tools and, and, um, uh, better education around how to support women through that. Um, and the same thing goes with like later on, um, life when we're, women are going through premenopausal, postmenopausal, um, health concerns there. So mental and physical health tools at that point. Um, I do think that, you know, even though a lot of digital solutions are presented for women or they're designed for women, there's still, um, a, generalized feeling of isolation or loneliness that many women feel. So like more community and like networking apps where um, we can kind of tap into how we are doing as women in this world, you know? So like uh, the apps on fertility journeys or motherhood journeys, I think would be really useful along the way. Yeah, I'm part of this uh, community Facebook group. It's actually part of uh, Awkward Essentials, which is a sexual wellness CP consumer product good company. But they have this community group to like talk about their product and sexual wellness. But it's actually become this place where women say, hey, and it's so funny how they always prefaced it. Hey, I don't know if this is an appropriate comment, so feel free to like delete it but I'm feeling so alone. And I feel like this is a safe group because you've been talking about semen for the last six months, you know, like about all this weird, juicy, you know, for lack of a better term, sexual (laughs) posting, I'm suffering with this, you know, chronic yeast infection and, you know, or there's even uh, men posting saying my wife has uh, chronic pelvic pain. We haven't had sex in months. How do I support my wife? I don't even, I can't Google. I have no idea how to do this. So even the men are joining in. Like 
yeah. she feels alone and I have no idea even what words to use, how to support. Right. right. And so women are so starving for that community and to feel like they're not the only one experiencing this. Totally. And I think the like the mental health aspects of how much your hormones impact the mood that you're in and understanding that better is a big, um, there's a big gap, I believe in terms of the solutions that are available. Cause I've, I've sat in, in therapy with women who have felt like, you know, I'm feeling depressed, I'm feeling anxious, or I, you know, cannot stop eating. And it, it wasn't necessarily about a mental health concern. It was more that their body was going through some sort of physical change that they didn't understand or wasn't explained to them. Um, yeah. And so, uh, you know, I think any type of education or better experiences that we can create around that would be useful. Do you think one last question on this, like, yeah. it's so interesting. Do you think that digital health is actually the solution? Because one thing that I get worried about is a, as an investor and someone who's kind of sitting in the center, eye of the storm here, there are so many freaking apps yeah. and like, I, I can't, I can't have one more app on my phone. I can't do it y'all. Like I cannot have one more app that says, take a picture of this every day, yeah. track this, blow into this, you know, like, and I'm yeah. like, oh, it's too much. You know, do you actually think digital health is the route for this or what are the tools that we're thinking here? Well, I don't think that one app is usually the solution, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it cannot be. Cause I think we oh, yeah, all we get about that too. Right. Like, yeah, like it, it, multiple. Yeah, exactly. I do think like having an ecosystem of, of apps is probably the best way to do it. So something to help you track your mental health, something to help you track your physical health or, um, like what, whatever it is that you're trying to change, but building your collection of apps that you use religiously, that would be the way to go because in, in doing so you're kind of creating your own, um, your own little healthcare system, right? Right. But it's on your phone. Um, I do think that is the future. I don't think, you know, like one app is going to solve everything. Um, even though we're trying to, you know, I don't want to sort of (laughs) discourage, uh, developers from, from being able to create that. I I do think it's, it's challenging though, because there's so many needs that, that need to be met. Um, so I think if an app is open to and flexible with how they, um, uh, solution for, you know, like having multiple subject matter experts kind of informing their design and potentially, um, coming at a, at a problem with, from multiple angles that it could potentially be the one hub for everything. Um, but at this point, I I do think a lot of people, when they are successful, they end up using building their own ecosystem of apps that, that support them. I'm hearing a femtech marketplace idea. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like you download the store and like you have all these apps that are like femtech certified. Like they don't sell your data. They don't, you know, they're culturally humble. They like, anyways, that's an idea. Our last question is, uh, what do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful? Oh, that's a good question. I was thinking about this one. I was thinking in terms of, um, you know, what have we been doing and where do we need to go next? I do think we need to do things differently than how they have been, uh, mainly around the idea of tech equity. You know, with tech equity in mind, we've been um, uh, in, in sort of the, in the real world, uh, whenever health equity or equity types of efforts have been um, pushed forth, they've typically supported uh, women, um, but not all people. Uh, so not all marginalized people or communities of color. So now that we are 
kind of transferring some of these ideas into a digital space and we're keeping equity in mind, I think we need to figure out how do we um, make sure that the outcomes of our equity efforts support not just women, but all people, all communities of color, right? So the more diversity we have at the table, the more women we have at the table, both as leaders and implementers of equitable digital health designs, the more likely we are to have designs that are decolonized in some way. You know, they're not based off of just one one type of person or one type of ar archetype being pushed forward. We're more likely to have a, a collective. I love that. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for all the important work that you do. This has been a fascinating conversation. I could talk to you all day. <laughs> <laughs> I could as well. This is, this is very good. I'm glad we got a chance to meet and chat. Thank you for listening to my interview with Dr. Hapreet Nagra, the VP of Behavior Science and Advanced Technologies at OneDrop. I hope we can all continue to think about and work on equity and cultural humility in the solutions we're building, investing in, and using. Alrighty, Fem fans, don't forget to register for our jobs fair happening on March 23rd from 12 to 3 p.m. Eastern. Join our new virtual community and become a Fem Pro member for only $14.99 a month to access all of our assets of the Femtech community, like our databases and self-guided Femtech Accelerator. Please consider supporting Femtech Focus by giving the show a five-star review and becoming a monthly donor to our organization. Subscribe to our newsletter and know all the new events coming up. All this can be done at femtechfocus.org. Until next time, keep innovating, because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.